0: Hello, and welcome to the Middle East Forum speaker webinar series and podcast. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We are pleased to have Michael Rubin, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, former Pentagon official and author, join us to discuss how much will the Taliban victory affect the Middle East? Dr. Rubin will speak for 15 minutes, then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I will turn the discussion over to Dr. Michael Rubin.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me. And I also would like to thank the Middle East Forum and Daniel Pipes. Of course, as many of you know, I got my start with Daniel Pipes back in 1992 when I was doing an internship. I'm a native son of Philly. And so it was um, fortuitous that I would do that. At any rate, moving right ahead to the question at hand. um, To answer the question, you know, the Middle East is going to be affected a great Deal by the disaster in Afghanistan. First and foremost, the stigma of abandonment is gone. Um, and therefore, with every successive administration, it's going to get easier to abandon allies. And Donald Trump did it with regard to the Syrian Kurds, even though we have a residual force there. Um, the Trump administration really pulled the carpet out from beneath the Syrian Kurds, and that's certainly going to make it difficult across the world for us to ally in the future with any indigenous forces, which are a tremendous amplifier as the United States seeks to assert power uh, wherever we need to. Some people may say, hey, look, the age of American intervention is over, but I would just remind that going back to George H.W. Bush, every single U.S. administration has had its national security. its national security um, reputation, its legacy defined by the problem and the crisis, which no one saw coming uh, during the campaign. George H.W. Bush was all about, it's the economy, stupid. He was going to be a domestic president. And then, of course, we had Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait. Um, Bill Clinton was also, um, I'm sorry, Bill Clinton was, it's the economy, stupid. He was going to um, focus on the economy, of course, and then we ended up having the Balkans. George W. Bush was going to be a domestically focused president, and then we had 9-11, um, and, and so on. Obama wanted to, quote, unquote, end stupid wars, and then we ended up not only uh, remaining in Iraq and Afghanistan, but also involved in Libya and Syria. And then most recently, Donald Trump, um, while he he didn't get as involved in um with intervention, um, with some exceptions here and there, certainly the crisis caused by COVID uh, sidetracked whatever his agenda was. And the same thing is going to hold true in the future. I'm also reminded as a historian, I get paid to predict the past. And my, my colleagues would say, I only get that right about half the time. But in the the whole point of having studied history isn't simply to be victorious in trivial pursuit, but rather to understand how others think in, and how they process policy, how they interpret events to try to have a better sense of what their behavior might be looking forward. And so I'm reminded um, of Harold Wilson, the British Prime Minister, who against the backdrop of a financial crisis in 1968, uh, gave a speech in which he basically announced that the United Kingdom was going to withdraw its forces east of the Suez Canal. When we look at the Persian Gulf, when we look at our bases there, for example, in Bahrain, most of the U.S. presence and our control of bases in the region dates from the British abandonment uh, two years later in 1970. Now, the Americans may tell ourselves that we're not going to abandon the region, but many of those in the region, especially the leadership, have the 1968 to 1970 period as living memory At the very least, they're not going to put all their eggs in the American basket. And that means that they're going to start making accommodations, even with powers which they find to be distasteful. Um, We're already seeing this, for example, where the United Arab Emirates, for the first time in 40 years, um, publicly congratulated the Islamic Republic of Iran on its so called Revolution Day. Um, Certainly, the Biden administration has said that they're going to put diplomacy first, but it's going to be hard to put diplomacy first if. if the other states simply don't believe us, don't take us seriously, don't believe that we have staying power. And this has also been reinforced in a bipartisan way uh, over the over recent years. I remember when Secretary of State Hillary Clinton uh, told our Gulf allies, hey, look, if Iran develops nuclear weapons, don't worry, we will extend a nuclear umbrella over you to, to uh, ensure your deterrence and so forth. That may have sounded well and good to Secretary Clinton and the Obama team, but remember, that for decades we had assured our allies in the Gulf that we would not allow Iran to develop nuclear weapons. And therefore um, what many of our allies in the Gulf looked at was this as a sign that again, the United States couldn't. Now, much more specifically, um, what I see moving forward is a Turkey-Pakistan alliance. Without doubt, um, even though the choice for defeat was ours and ours alone, Pakistan has emerged victorious. It's impossible to talk about the Taliban without mentioning Pakistan, just like it's impossible to talk about Lebanese Hezbollah without mentioning Iran. The Taliban wasn't created by Pakistan, uh, but it was was co-opted by Pakistan back in 1994, soon after they emerged as an indigenous movement. And therefore, Pakistan um, truly sees this as their victory. They're riding strong. They are what Osama bin Laden once called Uh, the strong horse, but Turkey itself uh, has made inroads with with the Taliban and with Pakistan. Remember, Pakistan is one of the few countries on earth, if not the only country that not only doesn't have diplomatic relations with Armenia, but doesn't even formally recognize Armenia's right to exist as a Christian country, as something other than uh, Azerbaijan. And I'm not just talking about Nagorno-Karabakh, I'm talking about the entirety of Armenia in many ways, uh, therefore, it, it has a lot in common with with um, with Turkey. There, Turkey has relations, of course, with the Taliban. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan said that Turkey has no ideological objections to where the Taliban is. This Turkey-Pakistan partnership, um, we've seen coming into the forefront in terms of some of the Turkish promises to cooperate with the Taliban, to cooperate with the airport and so forth. Uh, Just in the last couple of days, we've seen Pakistan, Turkey, military drills. uh, And I think this really is the wave of the future. Uh, Turkey in terms of Islamism, in terms of rejectionism is to the 21st century, what Saudi Arabia was to uh, the 20th century. And we will be paying the price for Turkey with this regard. Uh, And again, the fact that the United States has shown itself um, not to have staying power allows Turkey to, um, it enhances Turkish propaganda. Um, When it comes to various terrorist groups, for example, Hamas, for example, um, Lebanese Hezbollah, I think what the Taliban situation shows is that there really is no point for diplomacy. And granted, I'm of the mind that one should never have diplomacy with terrorists anyway. Uh, that, that I, I'm not where the European Union is when it comes to Hezbollah. I see things in terms of black and white rather than shades of gray. And I ex- can explain that in Q&A if you'd like. But um, starting with President Obama, we saw a timeline put on the American presence the, in Afghanistan, the American fight with the Taliban. And um, what that basically incentivized the Taliban to do was simply to keep their head down and realize that they could outlast the United States. I think we're gonna see the same lesson drawn uh, when it comes to groups like Hamas and Hezbollah, which might not directly be fighting the United States, but might instead be fighting the um, uh, Western powers, which in their mind, they conflate with the United States because uh, too often when it comes to Islamist thinking, the United States and the West and Great Britain are all conflated into one. Now, there are some exceptions on the horizon. For example, we just saw a situation in Morocco in which um, the Islamist Party, which was sort of the Moroccan equivalent of what the AKP was in Turkey, lost 90% of the vote. Um, And some have suggested at like Ahmed Charay, who um, is a Moroccan... um, Media editor who also writes for the national interest and others, that this just shows that um, dem- dem- Democrats don't need to be as wary of uh, political Islamists and Islamist parties as some in the West have suggested. I happen to disagree with this. I'm, I'm still quite cautious. I see Morocco as a happy exception um, in many of the same ways that Jordan is an exception uh, because in both those countries, it's not simply an issue of monarchy, but it's the fact that um, the monarch himself has a direct claim to religious legitimacy. In Morocco, the king is the commander of the faithful. And in Jordan, of course, uh, King Abdullah II traces and the Hashemites trace their legacy, um, their legitimacy back to um, the family of the prophet Muhammad. That gives them a special um, if you will, ability to sidetrack some of the claims of the Islamists and also to um, legitimately interfere with um, and and regulate some of what is preached in mosques and so forth. When I talk to Moroccan security uh, services and so forth, they say that even though they're concerned about Moroccans returning from the Islamic State and other Moroccan radicals, their major problem is not in terms of homegrown extremists uh, being recruited in mosques, it's actually um, their major concern is what happens in the suburbs of Paris and the suburbs of Brussels, where most of the recruitment now occurs. It's more of a European problem than it is a Moroccan, or for that matter, um, a Jordanian problem. So while some might say that this gives us um, hope that what's seen in Morocco, that the that the legacy of what the Taliban have achieved in Afghanistan, um, we don't have to panic quite so much about it. I'm really not quite so sure. I truly am worried about the future and I'm not sure we have even begun to imagine some of the reverberations of of what we've seen. When Ronald Reagan withdrew from Lebanon uh, after the, the 1983 Marine barracks bombing, I don't think he had any sense that what he was doing was going to inspire some, um, some Somali warlord, Mohammed Aidid to take on the US military inside Mogadishu. And then we had the Black Hawk Down episode. And of course, um, we know from his writings, we know from all sorts of sources that the fact that Reagan re- that withdrew from Beirut uh, after the Marine barracks bombing also convinced Osama bin Laden that the United States was vulnerable. While there are some in the Biden administration um, and some in the circle surrounding Trump, who seem to believe that when we withdraw, that we are going to remove the uh, desire of terrorists to take us on. Um, the reason why I think this is naive, why I think the Robert Pape uh, school of, it's the occupation, stupid, it's, it's all about grievance are wrong is because while it's comforting in US government circles and within the State Department to look at terrorism as motivated in grievance, for example, occupation, for example, American military presence. um, The reality, I think, um, even though it's on a spectrum is some of the hardcore terrorists with whom we face are actually motivated by ideology and one can't negotiate away ideology nor do the oceans protect us the way they may have once done back in uh, the 19th century. Now, where ideology and grievance come together, of course, uh, is when those who subscribe to the most extremist ideologies uh, believe that Western culture itself is a deliberate plot dreamed up in the bowels of the Pentagon to separate Muslim children from God. This is essentially what Abdullah Azam, who was one of Osama bin Laden's mentors taught uh, in Jeddah in the 1970s, if there's no difference between it that, I mean, what he was teaching was Cadillacs, colored TVs and cosmetics. That was all a Western plot. Uh, this is a typical also sort of Muslim Brotherhood site type thinking. Uh, and to some extent on the uh, analogous side, a uh, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini sort of thinking in, in uh, Iran. If you've got a situation like that, um, then the grievance, which these Islamists cite and, um, and how they see themselves as being attacked. And this is why the notion of defensive jihad goes out the window. Uh, If they see culture as the offense, there's no way to compromise with that. And so we are going to have to address this problem in the future. The fact that we've just given the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and the Islamic State, Khorasan, a safe haven, the fact that we've undermined our Indian allies as well, I think is going to be considered shameful. Uh, by historians, and we're going to, again, pay the price for for decades to come. Why don't I end there? I hope I've been fairly provocative, and then we can turn to some of the questions.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much. We have quite a few questions coming in. The first one from Lev Tristan, uh, regarding your last point on the ide- ideological aspect of it, why is it that the West uh, isn't engaging in the ideologic, ideological war on Islamism, exposing the logical errors in its ideological Ideology.
1: I'm Um, I'm speaking as an analyst rather than an advocate now, but because we have a separation of church and state, mosque and state, sometimes um, that gets um, internalized in the US government as religion being a third rail, which they can't take. Unfortunately, that's not realistic in the world. And so I do believe that we should engage a little bit more. That said, when someone when, when during the Bush administration and during the Obama administration, people would say, we can't call these terrorists jihadists because that just legitimizes them. I'm not sure you have a bunch of jihadists sitting around there saying, well, we weren't gonna be jihadists, but then Bush called us a jihadist. He gave us religious legitimacy. I think that sort of issue and that sort of semantic game uh, is nonsense. That said, it goes the other way that people don't wanna hear lectures uh, from the United States about the, um, about, um, about religion and what true religion is. As a policy practitioner, I've always looked at religion as what its practitioners believe it to be uh, from a policy standpoint rather than what some uh, Ivy League professor claimed it was. If you're being rushed by a suicide bomber, you don't have time to argue about whether what they think is an Islamic act isn't actually an Islamic act. I mean, it is what it is. Uh, that said, I do think we have plenty of platforms which we could give uh, for those who would make this debate. I'm reminded in 19, uh, one of the biggest problems, and this has been covered in Middle East Quarterly of extremism is this notion uh, theologically of abrogation that um, that the earliest verses of the Quran cancel out, all that came afterwards and early, um, sorry, the later verses of the Quran cancel, all that came out earlier. And of course the later, um, versus the Quran when Muhammad was controlling a state, were much more strident. You've got a situation where, for example, in Sudan in the 1980s, you had some scholars argue for reverse abrogation. They were arrested and executed. Why doesn't the United States use the power of its purse to basically say, hey, Sudan, or hey, Egypt, or hey, whomever, if you take action against these people, we're going to hold up, hey, this is what we did during the Bush administration with Saudadeen Ibrahim. Um, Voice of America, Radio Free Europe, and so forth, let's put up heterodox preachers Rather than try to bash America, I would argue that the rule of thumb for our broadcasting should be we should focus on those issues which the societies themselves, because of the um, autocracy of their governments, won't be able to talk about openly. And if that is uh, religious heterodoxy, if that's countering this notion of clerical rule in Iran, that's what we should be focusing on rather than simply bashing America.
0: Thank you so much for that. Kerry Hillebrand asks, what do you see as Pakistan's continuing role in Afghanistan? How will the Taliban takeover impact the Pakistani Taliban?
1: Um, Well, I mean, Pakistan, of course, and we've seen this with Faiz Hamid, the ISI uh, leader, the head of the Pakistani intelligence service, rushing to Kabul to put together the government. They're, they're, They're a whole scale proxy of Pakistan but I do think that that question is truly apt because when I talked to Pakistanis and just about two years, less than two years ago, um, I was in Pakistan's National Defense University talking to many of these people. When I did my book research for Dancing with the Devil, I interviewed former heads of the ISI. Um, They truly believe that they can use these forces, this radical Islamism for export only and not pay the price. What I see when I'm in Pakistan is the elite is surviving in a bubble. They don't realize just how tenuous that bubble is and just how um, the blowback which Pakistan is going to suffer. It is going to empower the Pakistani Taliban. Um, I would commend to everyone who's listening, Hussein Haqqani, the former Pakistani ambassador to the United States, who's now a scholar at the Hudson Institute, I would commend His book, I think it's called Between Mosque and Minaret, because I really do think he captures this dynamic uh, and the ticking time bomb, which Pakistan has now unleashed. Every single country which has tried to use radical Islamism for export only, um, the Assad regime in Syria, um, Gaddafi in Libya, um, Saudi Arabia has ended up suffering blowback, Turkey as well, and Pakistan is not going to be a historical exception to this.
0: Thank you. Eric Selkavas, do you see Iran joining a Pakistan-Turkey alliance? And do you also see Russia helping that alliance, if so?
1: Well, one of the biggest fallacies of the current American strategy and the basis of our outreach to the Taliban under both Trump and Biden has been this notion that we could use the Taliban against Al-Qaeda. Um, and it's this whole idea of me against my brother, me and my brother against my cousin, and so forth. What I don't think they truly realize is that it could just as easily be the Taliban and al-Qaeda against the United States. In fact, I would argue that's more likely. The same thing holds true with regard to Iran. While successive administrations, both Democrat and Republican, have sought to reach out to Iranian moderates, uh, to so-called reformers, on the notion that Iranians were pragmatic and that they might have some sort of deal-making or deal with the United States, pragmatism can be used just as easily to undercut and try to screw over the United States than um, actually help it find peace. This is one of the reasons we saw direct links between Osama bin Laden and the Islamic Republic of Iran, up to and including the fact that bin Laden's wife used to get dental care inside Iran and that Iran um, hosted bin Laden's sons. So the fact of the matter is, it is possible for some pragmatic alliance between these Otherwise, hostile states, these sectarian hostile states, um, because their hatred of the United States trumps their sectarian differences, I think that's actually much more likely. But that doesn't mean it's going to be a full throated alliance uh, where they're not going to fight around the margins in spaces where the United States um, isn't involved.
0: Thank you. And one of our viewers asked, do you see a new Arabic spring or popular revolution on the horizon? And if so, do you think that the US would support these?
1: Uh, Like I said, I'm a historian where I get paid to predict the past. Um, And therefore I have no idea what the future brings. And I think um, Daniel Pipes would actually share my agreement um, that social scientists have never really successfully Uh, predicted revolutions that so there's nothing scientific about social science. So short answer is, I don't know. That said, um, I think that the United States would be quite reticent where we are right now. Again, I speak as an analyst uh, in actively supporting any of these groups. And the the fact that we're turning our backs on um, the people of the Panjshir Valley, the Syrian Kurds and others uh, makes me think that the United States isn't apt to support those uh, who would be most aligned with our interest? What I worry about, however, is that the United States tends to think about international relations strictly in bilateral fashion in terms of um, our policy towards this country, our policy towards that country. And we believe that if we're not involved, that somehow these players have an even playing field. But China and Russia don't act as um, altruistically or as naively, and therefore, when we don't support those who are most ideologically aligned with us, we actually put them at a disadvantage because all those who are ideologically opposed to us um, are actually getting a great deal of support. And again, we see this also with, with Turkey and with Pakistan supporting the Taliban and various jihadi groups.
0: Thanks. Mad- Madonnas, uh, do you see India being a counterweight to the Paki Afghani bloc?
1: Um, I do by default, but it's not simply a matter for India um, of Afghanistan and Pakistan. I mean, Pakistan has basically become uh, under both Nawaz Sharif and Imran Khan, a vassal state of Pakistan. They really have a vassal state of China. They really have uh, sold out their sovereignty for a couple billion dollars. Um, And therefore when India looks at this, they tend to look at things with a much broader picture and recognize that if the Taliban are a proxy of the ISI and if the ISI is a vassal of China, in reality, the Taliban are um, a proxy of China once removed. And so I do think that India has an increasingly realistic viewpoint to this. That said, I've been surprised at uh, how quickly some Indian diplomats have both engaged with the Taliban and counseled engagement with the Taliban it's naive when the, as naive when the Indians do it as it is when the Americans do it. And while Zalmay Khalilzad, um, the U.S. Special Envoy under both Trump and Biden, has said that the Taliban has changed over the past 20 years, whenever I've been able to engage with the U.S. government official um, on this file, and I've tried to nail them down for any evidence whatsoever that, that the Tal- um, Taliban have changed, I haven't gotten the satisfactory answer.
0: It's from H.W. Cohen, what are the implications for Israel and the American-Israel bond?
1: Uh, well, certainly, I think not only for Israel, but for every state in the region, uh, the, implica- the 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 conclusion has to be don't trust the United States for your own security. And of course, Israel has long um, partnered with the United States, but has taken its own security um, has taken primacy over its own security calculations. That said, in the past, um, Israeli officials would try to partner with the United States as much as possible um, simply to um, de-conflict. And this certainly was the case in terms of giving the United States for warning of the 2007 strike, I believe it was, on the um, the Syrian plutonium plant near Der and so forth. I do think that error is over that if the United States isn't seen as a reliable ally, and indeed, if the United States um, tilts at diplomatic windows, um, windmills, for example, with regard to Iran, uh, a generation of Israeli officials and other officials are going to act much more unilaterally and the United States is gonna find out with the rest of the world when it's headline news on CNN. Thank
0: you. Uh, Jay Lewis asks, is it fair to conclude that the U.S. is losing its strength as a superpower in the broadest sense?
1: Um, I think it is fair to conclude that. When I look at Iraq and Afghanistan, I'm not opposed personally to either the Iraq or the Afghan wars, but oftentimes these are conf- three various questions are conflated. The first question was the decision whether to go to war. The second question was the decision whether or not to aim for democracy rather than simply replace um, Saddam Hussein or the Taliban with another dictatorship. And the third question is whether or not we should engage in nation building. I tend to believe that the first two questions, US policy has been correct. Um, When it comes to nation building, I look at 90% of the blood and treasure which we expended in both Iraq and Afghanistan uh, to have been wasted in a failed, a conceptually failed attempt to nation build. um, And that the United States would be better off getting out of that business much more broadly, um, I think that it's corrosive to US interest to spend so much money on foreign aid because it, money being fungible it simply allows these governments to either um, engage in dysfunctional corruption or channel money as in the case of Hamas and the Gaza Strip to, um, to military ambitions Um, simply because they know that other countries are always going to have their back when it comes to schools and water and electricity. Um, More broadly, however, when it comes to the United States and our place in the world, um, I do think that American analysts often get China wrong. We tend to look at China as a country which is on the ascendancy and is going to continue to be on this ascendancy. But I think there's two factors that we need to look at with regard to China. One is the legacy of more than three decades of the one child Um, policy has put China on the pathway to a demographic precipice, which may be even more severe than Germany and Japan's. Uh, And of course, when it comes to China, it's not as if they're going to allow immigration in order to um, mitigate some of the effects of that demographic precipice. Also, because of the one-child policy, um, there was a great deal of femicide within China, where girl babies were were killed. And therefore, um, there is a disproportionate number of young men in China. Well, I'm not talking about the frustration that young men would then have and not being able to get married, but China hasn't fought a major war in which young men who are their families entire um, future insurance um, as the parents enter old age, China hasn't faced a situation in which they see whether their own citizens are going to be sanguine about sending their only children off to war, and that's a dynamic which I, I do think we need to think about uh, as we look beyond China's bluster. That said, I'm worried about I'm less worried about the rise of China than I am about the collapse of China and what President Xi might do in order to distract from the economic and demographic cliff the Communist Party has put China on um, on the pathway to.
0: Thank you. In our last minute or so here, can you just tell us some recommendations you you think we should enact?
1: Um, Certainly. Um, I do think that we need to increase our defense budget. I do think that we need to drop this nonsense of forever wars because there is no difference uh, rhetorically between what Biden and Trump called forever wars and traditional containment and deterrence. I do think we need to realize that if the United States um, creates a vacuum, that it's not gonna be the forces of altruism which fill it. It's gonna be states like Russia, China, the Islamic Republic of Iran and Turkey. I do think that we need to ally much more. Let me put it this way. I think that um, we should number one, abandon the Interlake air base in Turkey We have plenty of alternatives in Romania, in Greece, and increasingly with our amphibious assault vessels, the LHGs, uh, like the Iwo Jima, the Kearsarge, and so forth, the Bataan. Um, When it comes to Pakistan, I do think that we need to play hardball with Pakistan. They should be a state sponsor of terror. They certainly shouldn't be a major non-NATO ally, but I have a piece today in the national interest. I would even go further and start to consider uh, whether or not the United States should support Baluchi separatists simply because that would um, neuter China's um, ability to use Guadar and the entire China-Pakistan economic corridor. And if Pakistan wants to play hardball with us, it's time we start returning the favor, not just with the Pakistanis, not just with the Turks, but every country that takes us on. That said, no more nation building, no more um, aid projects, which undermine the the purpose of um, a government's evolution.
0: Thank you so much. We have quite a few unanswered questions. If you could just tell our viewers where we can find some more of your work.
1: Okay. Well, um, you. I always publish my work on Twitter at m r u b i n one nine seven one. I don't use Twitter for conversations. I've always found that a little bit too narcissistic. Uh, but I just use it as a um, as a distribution platform. You can also find my work at the American Enterprise Institute. That's www.aei.org. And again, I want to thank Daniel Pipes and the Middle East Forum. I got my start with the Middle East Forum. Um, I once edited the Middle East Quarterly, and I've got to just express my gratitude because uh, what's happening in Philadelphia doesn't stay in Philadelphia. And without the support of the Middle East Forum, there are many of us around town in Washington uh, who wouldn't be in the positions we are now.
0: Thank you so much. We truly appreciate you taking time to speak with us today. Unfortunately, we've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you again, Dr. Rubin, for joining us. Thank you. For our viewers, uh, we will not be having our Israel Insider webinar this week, but thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day.